Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be going over the life of Joseph. Joseph, he's a pretty famous patriarch. We all know who he is. We all know the stories about him. But let's dive into the text and look at the, the critical details. What's going on there? Joseph is often used as an example by Calvinists of God's meticulous sovereignty. And when they use the word sovereignty, we need to keep in mind that they're hijacking words. They're hijacking concepts. And so they'll say, look at this. God is doing something here for Joseph. And they'll point to the text and they'll say, God did this. See, God's sovereignty. What they're doing there is they're playing word games. They want to use sovereignty in the general sense. We understand that sovereignty when there's a king who's ruling and accomplishes stuff and does stuff. We understand that sovereignty and so we understand what they're saying when they say these are examples of sovereignty. But what they really mean by that is meticulous micromanagement, in which God controls every flutter of every butterfly wing, every dust moat, everything that happens on earth is micromanaged by God's control. So Joseph, the story of Joseph is going to be very interesting because we can look at it and see how it's worded and see how God acts in the story so looking at the details of the story, the details, that's where the proof is in. Is what kind of quote-unquote sovereignty is being displayed in this story? And what's God's role in the story? Is it the Calvinistic sense of sovereignty? Or does the story actually have an open theist bent to it? An open theist current that flows throughout the story. Let's start out with uh, Joseph and his dreams. Joseph is a young man. And he, he has these dreams. Jo Joseph is famous for being a dream haver, a dream interpreter. And that's, that's his special skill, which helps him rise to power. Of course, throughout the story, he, he credits it to God. He says God is the one who interprets dreams. He's receiving information through God. He then dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, of eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I or your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow yourselves down to the ground before you? Now dreams in the ancient world, every time we encounter them in the Bible and uh, we encounter dreams in mythology, they have meaning. And uh, we, we find this especially in these ancient stories in Genesis. Joseph has a dream in, in this text Later on, there's a baker and then there's a cupbearer who also have dreams, which are also, they, they line up to reality. There, there's these predictions of the future. And then also, Pharaoh in the text has a dream. And dreams throughout the Bible function in this sense. Even King Abimelech, a uh, pagan king, God appears to him in a dream. So dreams have this, this supernatural element to them, and they have meaning above and beyond. And the brothers understand this, and the brothers see Joseph as an arrogant, kind of spoiled boy. He's, he's the favorite of his father. He's given all these gifts. He's bestowed gifts and privileges that they are not. And he's the youngest. And then he comes in front of them, and he has these dreams in which they are bowing to him. They are showing him the reverence, whereas in that ancient culture, it'd be vice versa. The younger would be serving the older. And so this makes them very jealous and angry at him. But check out this dream here in Genesis uh, 37, 9. And uh, I've already read it, but there's these, the sun and moon and 11 stars. And the brothers are instantly able to interpret it. Remember to the Gideon story real quick, where Gideon puts on a disguise, walks through the enemy's camp, 
and there's two soldiers talking. And one of them says that uh, they dreamed that uh, a big loaf of bread was attacking them. And the second guy interpreted the dream as uh, Gideon's armies are going to conquer them. And Gideon was happy for this. And so here's a pagan dream and a pagan interpreter. And Gideon's getting this information third hand and he's taking it to heart. And he, he believes what he's hearing as some sort of divine uh, prophecy, foretelling, some sort of omen. But back to here, 11 stars were bowing down to me. And so this, these are the brothers in the stories. And the brothers instantly understand that this is them. The sun is the dad and the moon is their mom. Rachel is dead at this time, so it would be Leah. But the funny thing about that is Leah dies before this ever comes true. So towards the end of Genesis, there's a passage where it talks about Leah being buried back in the land of the Hittites or a plot of land that's outside of Egypt. She died before she ever got to Egypt. So what this dream is, is it's a foretelling of the future. Yes, it's a, it's a foretelling of things to come, but it's not one to one exact. It's, it's a near foretelling of the future. It's not a prophecy. It's not like looking into the future with a crystal ball and seeing a movie play out. It's just general foreshadowing of things to come. And, and there's that leeway that's allowed, even within this passage, it, it, it's, not, it's not what we think of as gazing into the future and then reporting what you see back. It's premonitions of things to come, which loosely do come, come true. And, and they're vague enough that allows a lot of flexibility in the fulfillment. But they do come true, and we see it come true. And what we don't see are these incredibly, incredibly detailed dreams with a, a lot of little details that are all forced to come true you know, centuries after it's made. You don't see that. You, you see these more near-term type of dreams and their fulfillment. We don't learn from the text in any of these dream sequences whether all these dreams are coming from God. Sometimes the text will specifically say the dream is from God. And uh, then the interpretation comes from God as well. Sometimes God's just interpreting the dreams. And Joseph uh, ascribes the interpretation to God. So we don't know in this culture, in, this, this, uh, in their thought process, if these dreams were some sort of a natural phenomenon or if they were God-inspired. The text doesn't tell us. Your text is very vague on that point. So right there, that detail where the prophecy doesn't come true exactly, that already undermines the Calvinists want to use this passage as deterministic, fatalistic, micromanagement sovereignty, which is, which is truly the sovereignty they believe in. They don't believe in the general sovereignty that open theists believe in, that God makes things happen. Yeah, God arranged events to get Joseph into a position of a power and then eventually got him to bring his brothers to him and then they would bow down to him and that did occur and his father as well he, they came and served under Joseph as Joseph was the ruler of this land but the mother didn't it's not a micromanagement this is not some sort of fatalistic dream that can't be averted no matter what we, we then meet uh, Joseph. He goes out to the brothers, and the brothers are in the flocks, and they, they're tending the herds, and they see their brother coming, and they hate this guy because, remember, he's kind of spoiled. He's arrogant at this point, and they want to kill him. <laughs> they're going to kill their brother. But Reuben, 
he he tries to save his brother. He he has the he devises this plan where they put him in the pit and then they don't kill him and then Reuben comes back and saves him. But uh, along comes this caravan and as Reuben's out and he's not able to spoil their new plan, they sell him into slavery. Fast forward to Egypt and we we get this reoccurring phrase that we find along with Joseph in his life. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. And and also the phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. So he's in slavery, and he's working for Potiphar, and whatever he does, God makes succeed. So does that sound like fatalistic micromanagement, sovereignty? Or, or does that sound like God is giving a boost to everything that Joseph decides to do? So who, who's forcing Joseph to do the things he does? God is giving him success in the things he does, not vice versa. God's not forcing him to do the things he does to bring him success. God is uh, a power behind Joseph. God is giving that increase to Joseph based on what Joseph decides to do. It's interesting wording, but the Calvinist will come through these passages and they'll flip it on its head. That uh, God, this is God's sovereignty. God controls everything, makes everything happen. That's not what the text says. Joseph is doing stuff, and God is giving him the increase. God is benefiting the things that Joseph decides to do. First in Potiphar's house, and then there's this uh, scene in which Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. He rejects her, and she falsely accuses him. He goes to prison, and the same thing happens all over again. That God is with Joseph, and everything he decides to do, God blesses. God gives increase to. Again, not the Calvinistic idea that God controls everything. Instead, it's the idea, the open theist idea, that God is with us. God responds to us. God works with us. God cares about our volition, what we decide to do. God cares about, you know, fulfilling <laughs> our needs. He be- Joseph becomes a very a very powerful man in slavery, in prison, and then he also becomes a powerful man over the entire realm later on. Reading the same phrases in the prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison, and whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So fatalistic micromanagement doesn't sound like that at all to me. It doesn't. And the Calvinist uh, expropriation of this story for their idea of sovereignty, it's, it's a huge stretch. It's because they're desperate for proof texts and anything that they can grab, the, the, they, they'll try to do. And anything that they could claim sovereignty for, they'll do. But they'll, they'll use the word, of course, in double meanings. They'll talk about sovereignty, how we understand sovereignty, and they'll say, look at all these passages that show God's sovereignty. Oh yeah, by the way, we have a specific definition of sovereignty that's not supported by the context. A definition of sovereignty that matches no definition throughout history of the word sovereignty. But we claim you have to believe this definition to truly believe in sovereignty. If you believe in the normal definition of sovereignty, you don't believe in sovereignty. But they don't prove it from the text. They, they, they don't, they're not textual. They, they're looking for proof texts. And they don't, care, they don't care to prove their definition of sovereignty from the proof text.
we're in prison and Joseph uh, is approached by uh, two of his uh, prisoners and he's, he's kind of like uh, a head prisoner and they have dreams and they, they have two different dreams and they say to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell me. So Joseph is going to act as a conduit between God and these individuals. We don't know where these people, their, their origin of their dreams, whether it's uh, self-originated, where it, whether it's demonically inspired, whether the dreams were from God, we don't know. The text doesn't say. The interpretation, though, is from God. And he uses this uh, instance this in order to flag these people to uh, get his name out there and uh, there, there seems to be an escape hatch that's being planned by God. Because later in the text, Pharaoh gets a dream as well. And this dream seems to be an implant from God and telling Pharaoh what God will do. God, what God will do is what the text says. And so it seems to be an implanted dream, Pharaoh's, referencing back to these dreams here as an escape mechanism to get Joseph out of this prison and into a place of authority. We'll skip over to there real quick. It's pretty interesting. Joseph interprets the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. One of them's killed, one of them's restored to their previous position. Then Pharaoh, years later, it's two years later, after two whole years, so Joseph is in prison for another two years as this is happening, and Pharaoh gets this dream. And uh, first there's these these cows, there's plump, fat cows. They come out of the Nile River, and then behind them are these skinny cows that eat them up, and then they don't gain weight themselves. And uh, you know this this makes him uh, afraid. Pharaoh, he doesn't know what this is g going on here. Then he has a second dream. The second dream is a very similar, where there's these these ears of corn, and uh, they're destroyed by these. Uh, blighted ears of corn. The, the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And in, in these uh, visions, of course, the thin cows, they don't gain mass, and the, the blighted corn doesn't gain mass after consuming the plump. No one in the kingdom is able to interpret this dream for Pharaoh, which brings up the cupbearer, and he explains to Pharaoh that there's a Hebrew and Hebrew is an interesting word. So Hebrew is used of Abraham. So it probably at that time, it's a, it's a synonym with a Semitic people, which later in the Bible, it becomes synonymous with Jew or Israelite. But before then, it's just kind of like a general term for people who are of Semitic origin. He says there's this Hebrew in prison who interprets dreams. And then Joseph is brought in front of Pharaoh himself. And he, he says again, that the interpretation is not from him, it's from God. Of course, we're using the word Elohim. Yahweh is not introduced until Exodus. Exodus uh, 6, 3, I believe, talks about how these people, these patriarchs, were not introduced to the Yahweh name of God. They're still using El Shaddai. So he uses Elohim in this context, that uh, the interpretations are from God. So there's two dreams. And they're the kind of similar concept dreams. And then there's a recounting of the dreams twice. So we got four very similar recountings of basically the same dream. And Joseph has a very peculiar uh, definition of what's going on here. 
And uh, of course, this is uh, per God's instructions. He says, it is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. So God gave Pharaoh this dream in this context. We don't know about these other dreams before who was the implementing agent, but at least in the Pharaoh dream, it's an implanted dream by God to show Pharaoh what he's about to do. And look at this verse. This verse is incredibly interesting when we're thinking about fatalism, prophecy, what, what's going to happen. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that it is a thing that is fixed by God and will shortly bring it about. So the doubling of the dream means it's assured, it's fixed, it's going to happen, which suggests that if the dream wasn't doubled, you know, these, these prophecies, these visions of the future are not fatalistic. They can be thwarted. They can be, people could pray. Uh, you have a dream or something, you're about to die. You pray to God and then God could respond to that and undo that prophecy. And in this case, probably what's going on here is if, if this famine does not happen, Joseph doesn't get elevated to power because Joseph is the one who's ultimately going to subvert the devastating effects of this famine and make sure there's enough food to go around. He's going to make sure you do the logistics, get the logistics to make sure there's plenty of crops to, to wait out the famine. And so it, it doesn't make sense for God to go back on this prophecy and then invalidate on a, a good reason to bring Joseph to the head of Pharaoh's household. And so God declares that this dream is double because it will happen no matter what. It is fixed and you're not going to subvert it. Does that sound like fatalistic micromanagement if uh, dreams can generally be subverted? Did everyone have double dreams throughout the Bible about things that are going to happen? No. And a lot of these dreams were subverted based on petitions to God. A lot of these visions, a lot of these prophecies, a lot of these interactions with God where he says he's going to do something subverted based on the actions of people. And this uh, back and forth give and take. It probably wouldn't work to God's purposes. Uh, later in the text, it says that the purpose of all of this was to bring Israel into safety. And what it does historically is it brings Israel under the protection of Egypt and allows the, the small Israelite clan to grow into millions of people. And so it seems to have worked very incredibly effectively in order to develop and grow Israel as a people group. The famine occurs within uh, Israel and Egypt and the ancient world, and Joseph's brothers are forced to come to Egypt, and then they're forced to deal one-on-one -on -one with Joseph. And Joseph plays with their minds. He plays tricks on them. He gets them to bring the youngest brother, Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin and Joseph were sons of Rachel, and all the other children were sons of Leah. Leah was the trick wife, the surprise wife. You get married to a woman, and Surprise, it's a different lady altogether. And so Rachel's the bonus prize. You get both sisters, apparently, in this uh, situation. But Benjamin and Joseph were the sons of Rachel. And the father, Jacob, is forced to come down to Israel as well eventually. And they meet with Joseph, and he explains these things to them. He says this, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God has sent me before you to preserve life. And 
For the famine that has been in this land for these two years, there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and the Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And so he's, he's giving the credit to God. God's the one who directed this and maneuvered to get Joseph into this place. He says, you didn't send me here, God sent me here. So God's hand was behind these the logistics to get Joseph to where he's at. Does that mean Calvinist micromanagement sovereignty is correct? Or do we understand it better as we've already been reading, where Joseph has a lot of latitude and volition in what he says and does, and God blesses it. God tries to create structures. God tries to weave Weave, I'm going to use the word weave, he weaves an interesting and uh, complicated way uh, of events to get things he wants accomplished accomplished. And his purpose in putting Joseph where he was, not only to save survivors among the land, but to save Israel, per this text. Fast forwarding in the story, Israel, or Jacob, comes down to Egypt. He dies. There's a very long couple chapters that talk about his death. And then we reach Genesis 50. And in Genesis 50, Joseph's father's dead. And the brothers think, now Joseph doesn't have the father who might give him scorn if he were to punish them. So they come to him, and uh, they're, they're uh, very humble about this. And Joseph says to them, he gives them this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this is a very famous verse. It's often referred to by people who say that God micromanages everything. We see some evil in the world today. If someone gets raped, someone gets murdered, there's a school shooting, a school shooting, and they say that God is meaning this for good. So you see this evil here, but God works everything to a specific plan. And they'll link this verse to uh, verses like in Romans 8, that God works all things uh, to the benefit of those who love him. Even though that verse itself is in the context of people dying and be, people being hurt. And that verse contextually is about the overall outcome, that those people are going to be God's saved, chosen people. It's not about working those uh, sins into some master plan where that sin was to the greatest good. That's not what's going on there. And remember, in that verse as well, it's all about synergy. God works together with us. Synergy is actually the word used there. That, that's, it's, it's funny. It's funny. Calvinists, they hate the word synergy. They think that if you are a quote-unquote synergist, that you're a heretic. But one of their favorite proof texts literally uses that word about working things together with people. And it's also linked quite often by them to Genesis 50:20 that we or mankind means things for evil, God means it for good. But looking at this word, this uh what what does this mean that he meant it for good? So I'm going to switch to the King James uh, plus with the Strong's numbers and we'll go click on that. And it uh, means literally to weave, to fabricate, to mold. So, so we, we can't just assume meaning is on words. We can't just think that 
God is micromanaging these same events and there's this dual purpose where every single flicker of the wrist during this entire event is purposed by God, whereas also coincidentally purposed by man. No, it's not what that's about. It's about dueling purposes where, where one person has one purpose and they're trying to make that happen and another person has another purpose. I think about the art of war, and in the art of war, one of the concepts are you use your enemy's resources against them. So the more you could get your enemy to fight themselves, remember in Gideon, Gideon got the enemy army to fight themselves. He put them in a state of chaos, and they attacked each other. And that That's what I see going on here, whereas God is meaning something for good. God is weaving it for good. God is manipulating for it to good, for good. But uh, there's people, there's individual actors that are involved who are trying to, they're at cross purposes with God. And who wins out? It's a person who's more clever, who, who's, who understands logistics better, who understands people better, who, who's more powerful. And in that case, God's going to be winning out in these scenarios. And what is Stephen in Acts? A future commentary on the events that transpire here. And what does he think? Does he think that God micromanages everything and that, you know, this is all some sort of divine game? Well, let's look to see what he says. This is Stephen's speech. And he says, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over all Egypt and his house. So does this sound like God is uh, micromanaging the brothers. No, instead it sounds like God is saving Joseph from his brothers. He says that he delivered him out of all his troubles. God was with him and delivered him. Let's see what the ESV says there. God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. So Stephen doesn't sound like a Calvinistic, micromanagement, fatalist type of guy. He instead sounds like an open theist that God is working with situations as they occur to manipulate them for the best. He's with people and he acts and he's present. And remember in Calvinism, their, their metaphysics doesn't allow that. That doesn't allow God to interact and have relationships with people. He's eternally simple, immutable, transcendent. And remember in the words of their own theologians, God cannot have foreknowledge. God cannot have predestination because he's an eternal being. Time is not a concept for God. It doesn't sound at all like what went on in the book of Genesis, where God is with Joseph. God, God cares about Joseph. God is prospering him, and God is uh, intimately involved. It sounds like it's a more of a relationship going on in Genesis than this impersonal, uh, abstract force that the Calvinists would like to consider God. It's, it's not a biblical concept, this abstract force. Instead, God is personal, he's relational, he works with creation to get things done, to accomplish his will. And that's the God of the Bible. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.